That song makes me, that was a great song. It is a great song, by the way. It makes me think of a quote that struck me a long time ago. It was by a medieval monk by the name of Thomas Akempis, writing, I believe, in the 1300s. And one of the counsels he gave to his readers was to always keep before you the hour of your death. Uh, that life really is a preparation for dying well. That song reminds me of that. I was... Uh, uh, one evening, Jennifer and I were in our bedroom, and I had some books on my night table, and I was looking through one, and I was reading a little bit. It was one of uh, it was a Puritan author, I believe it was Thomas Goodwin, and uh, the 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 editor of the book described how Thomas Goodwin had died, and I remember reading that and just being absolutely amazed with just the hopeful, joyous. Uh, way that he died. And I shut the book and I looked over at Jennifer. I said, anyone who dies like that is worth reading. And that's really what we are about uh, as we live our lives for the glory of Christ. We are preparing, and the church has the job of preparing people to die well, to die in hope, to die rejoicing in Christ, and to go and be with him. If you would, please go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 11. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. The title for the sermon today, which I'll go ahead and give you, is An Eruption of Praise. An Eruption of Praise. This morning we come to the doxology at the end of Romans 9 through 11. It's a uh, it's a fancy church word. If you haven't been in church, you won't have a clue what in the world, probably, what in the world that means. But uh, this is where Paul abruptly erupts in a statement or song that praises God. He just erupts in praise. And it really is quite abrupt. I mean, we don't get a transition here. I'm going to praise God now. We're going to now move to doxology. You know, we have that in our service as a way of sort of moving the service along so that you understand, you know, what we're doing. Uh, but none of that here in Romans 11. He just erupts spontaneously in praise. We've been in this three-chapter section of Romans, Romans 9 through 11. We've been in this section for a few months, and the theme has centered on Israel's rejection of Christ, which you've heard me say probably a hundred times or so. Uh, that's what these chapters are about. What is happening? What is going on? That is really what Paul's dealing with because it would have been shocking in that day that there was a, a message about Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that this message, uh, this great truth about Yahweh was being rejected by the great mass of Yahweh or the Lord's people. So what is happening? What is God doing? That's what we've been looking at now for a few months in chapters 9 through 11. And last week, we came to Paul's conclusion about God's plan. This was his final explanation of what God is doing. And as I said last week, a lot of the bits of information that we get in the, at the end of the, uh, of the chapter, chapter 11, verses 25 up to 32, uh, a lot of that information we've already seen. So it really does function as a summary. There are a few little bits that are fresh, but by and large, it's a summary that is meant to pull together everything that Paul has been saying 
and kind of put a crown on top of it, an explanation of what God, what God is doing. So let me just quickly give a little summary there. Israel has been partially hardened. The Gentiles or pagan nations are streaming in. They are streaming into Christ. A, a wide open door has, has been made for the nations of the world, the peoples, the non-Jewish peoples. In the present, God is using the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. So as the Jews are seeing the Gentiles come into the kingdom, it is meant to provoke them to jealousy. That is their God, their holy book, that is their prophets and so forth. And the Gentiles are appropriating these things as their own. That is meant to provoke Israel to jealousy in the present. In the future... When the full number or fullness of the Gentiles have come in, then God will restore or save Israel. So we're, we're in, a, in the present time, we're in a period of time where the Gentiles are streaming in and Israel has been largely hardened. But in the future, when the full number of the Gentiles have come in, then God will restore his people Israel. He will take away their sins. He will banish ungodliness from them. This restoration of Israel will finally lead to climactic worldwide blessing. The way that Paul presents this is that the future ingathering of uh, the people of Israel as a whole, as a mass, as an entity, that that event is the climax of history. That that really is the last chapter. It's not to say that's the very last thing that happens if we were to sort of map it all out. But it is to say that that itself is the catalyst for worldwide blessing. The climax of history, which Paul even goes so far as to describe in verse 15 as life from the dead. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In the end... Both groups will have been imprisoned in disobedience. By the way, imprisoned in disobedience by God. It's God's sovereignty over all. Consigned to disobedience. In the end, both groups will have been imprisoned in disobedience in order that God may have mercy on all. Both Israel and the Gentiles, in the end, everyone who is in the new heaven and new earth, and particularly with respect to these two large groups, Israel and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Greeks, so forth, Greeks standing for all Gentiles, that all people will praise God for his mercy. All consigned to disobedience, that God may have mercy on all. So listen to the way Paul concludes his discussion from last week. I just want to read verses 30 to 32 to you. For just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their, Israel's, disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So here we are, Gentiles, streaming in, and we recognize who we were before all of this. We recognize who our ancestors were. They were godless pagans. That's who we come from. And we, we say, oh my goodness, God has saved us. God has brought us the gospel. He's brought us out of idolatry to belong to him. Yes. 
And in that day, Israel will say, we rejected our Christ. We crucified our Christ. We didn't just reject and kill the prophets. We as a mass rejected God incarnate and God is receiving us. Oh, what mercy. That's what God's doing. And then verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And it is these words in verse 32 that launch him into praise in the final verses of the chapter. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, academic scholars and commentators, they debate about everything. So <laughs> there's never a verse without debate. But one of the debates is, so, scratching the chin, so this uh, doxology at the end of Romans 11, is it a conclusion to what Paul has just said? Is it a conclusion to all of Romans 9 through 11? Is it a conclusion to all of Romans 1 through 11? <laughs> you know, it could go on and on. And I think what we are to understand is that it, it is a response, I think, immediately to verse 32. Verse 32 pulls together everything that Paul's been saying in uh, chapters 9 through 11. And verse 32 is stated and that immediately launches Paul into the heavenlies with the passage we're going to read today. But before we read it, I want to draw out one implication for us. Just a basic implication looking at the position of this doxology in Romans 9 through 11. And here it is. Theological truth should lead to worship. And worship should be based on theological truth. Let me give you a quote from one commentator that helps put it a little, a little differently. Beware equally of an undevotional theology and of an untheological devotion. Man, that is, that is just so penetrating to much of what we see in evangelicalism. Beware equally of an undevotional theology and of an untheological devotion. In other words, the, the flow of thought in Romans 11 as we, <clears throat> excuse me, as we come to the end <clears throat> is this theological explanation, this, this exposition of God's truth in history. And it is tedious. And we've talked about that. There's a lot of little details and there's a lot of repetition. Paul is using a lot of time, a lot of space to go into the, the, all of the theology of chapters 9 through 11. But he has to travel through that theology in order to get to the doxology at the end of the chapter. And the doxology itself is rooted there. And so what this tells us as Christians, just in terms of the Christian life, is that study and worship must go together. We study unto worship. And we worship based on what we discover in studying God's word. There is a lot of superficial worship that goes on in evangelicalism that is not rooted in God's truth. And so I hope that this is at least an illustration for us 
of this, uh, this relationship. They're, they are inextricably bound together. Study of theology, study of God's truth, what God is doing, who God is and what he's doing in history, and the worship of God that comes from that. And you know, you can go in the opposite extreme. I remember when I was doing graduate work in Edinburgh, many of the other students, not, well, not many, but some of the other students, I noticed that as they got there, they became sort of intellectually intoxicated with what they were studying, with the academic research that they were doing. And what I found is very interesting is the guys there who were sort of pulsating with devotion, pulsating with a love for the Lord, growing in Christ, wanting to pray and so forth. The guys who were doing that, who were, who were living in that way, were without fail guys who were very much connected to the local church. And it was because their study and their worship were not disconnected. They didn't just become cerebral Bible readers, but they were people who were responding to the truth of God with the worship of God. So we see that as we come to the end of this chapter. If you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We have read Romans 11 a lot. So I'm not going to uh, go all the way back to verse 1 today. We've, we've, we've tried to stay within it. But last week really was the conclusion to... Uh, to the matter, and uh, as we come to the text for today, we Paul is tying to he's he's, he's responding really to everything from uh, the beginning of verse nine uh, of chapter nine all the way to the end of chapter eleven. But what I do want to do is go back to verse twenty-five. So we're going to begin reading chapter eleven, verse twenty-five. But our text for today is verses thirty-three to thirty-six. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable. For God's people. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And by the way, he's writing to largely Gentiles, and we see that from the previous uh, discussion. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they, speaking of Israel, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? <clears throat> For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. It really is a joy to read a passage like this. Uh, it's a joy to preach a passage like this. It is absolutely, uh, it just jolts you, you know, when you, uh, when you come to something so lofty. It is, it is as though Paul just soared right into the heavens. He's just on the ground, very much in the weeds, with all the things that are going on and Israel's rejection and the Gentiles being brought in and so forth. And then all of a sudden, he's just like a rocket just shooting right up into the heavens. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's blessing as we come to uh, this passage and that he would illuminate his word for us, that he would penetrate our hearts with it, that he would show us how we are to respond to it as Christians. And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, I pray that you would seek God's mercy, that you would ask and seek and knock uh, the one who knocks, God will open the door to him, that you would cry out to God this morning, God, change my heart. I'm not as I ought to be. I need Christ. So let's pray and ask for his mercy. Father, we are so thankful <clears throat> that we are here in this place together. God, we could be uh, just doing various other things this morning that would not involve meditating on you. And God, you've been merciful to us in bringing us here. Uh, no padding of our own backs. Uh, Lord, this is your providence. This is your goodness. And so, Lord, we pray that as we get to be recipients of this little chunk of your word where we're soaring into the, to space, Lord, we pray that uh, you would lift up our hearts, that we would be grateful that we get to drink in these words. And we pray that this morning you would teach us and you would help us. God, we are greatly in need of help in so many ways, in so many areas, areas. Help to fight sin, help to be comforted and to maintain our hope, uh, help to relate with those in our lives whom we love, help to maintain joy and unity and healthy doctrine as a church. Lord, we need help in every way. And so we pray that you would help us this morning by this passage. We thank you for your glory. We thank you for how incomprehensible and unfathomable you truly are, God. How infinite, how beyond us. We, uh, we just bow before you as we come to a text like this. And we ask that we would, we would truly bow this morning. That every heart in here would be prostrate before you as we leave and as we go through the rest of this service. Lord, please be with us now by your spirit, for Christ's sake, in his name, amen. So the content of Paul's praise, of his eruption of praise, can be divided into three parts. And I, I, I wrestled for a while over an outline for this passage, but it's just, there's, there's, <laughs> there's such a richness here that really I... I'm, I'm just going to go with what, uh, what Paul clearly gives us, and you can go ahead and put those up on the screen there. It's divided into three parts. First, we have exclamations, then we have questions, and then thirdly, conclusions. So exclamations, verse 33, you'll notice, verse 33, you've got all exclamation points. And then uh, questions, verses 34 to 35, Paul asks these rhetorical questions. And then finally, Paul wraps it all up with his two interrelated conclusions, those two sentences with a period. So our English editor's given us our punctuation there. We're going to go with that. So exclamations, questions, and conclusions. So let's begin with the exclamations. Look with me at verse 33. 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You know, it's interesting. Paul had to use here words. They, these, are, these are Greek words. The first one only occurs here in the New Testament. Uh, but they, they can only be translated by words we rarely use <laughs> in English. That tells us something profound right there. We really don't use these words in English, but this is what you have to say. This is how you have to translate these words. Well, the very first word, oh, tells us that Paul's heart has been filled to the point of overflowing. It evokes all sorts of emotions. You know, we get Paul's anguish at the beginning of chapter 9, and then at the end of chapter 11, we get this absolute astonishment, amazement, this wonder and sense of awe in the presence of God. Oh, Paul is overflowing. Explanation finally erupts in Praise. There just really isn't anything more to say but to praise God. Explanation turns to exclamation. And we actually get two or even three exclamations here, three wondrous statements about the glory of God. So we're going to take a moment and look at each of these. First, Paul celebrates the depth of the riches and wisdom of and knowledge of God. Now, let me just briefly say, I try not to get hung up on these things uh, in sermons, but let me just briefly say that the NIV and the NASB put uh, wisdom and knowledge under riches. So the riches of wisdom and knowledge, or the riches both of wisdom and of knowledge. But I think in this case that the ESV uh, translation is to be preferred uh, and that's the way most commentators go as well. So we have three items here, riches, wisdom, and knowledge. So what is Paul saying? Well, the main word is depth. Everything is coming off of that word depth. Oh, the depth, and then of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth. On a basic level, it tells us that there is no bottom to what Paul is describing. There is no end to God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. It, it is like journey to the center of the earth, but you never get there. You just keep going and going and going and going. And you never get to the bottom. Oh, the depth. They are inexhaustible and infinite. There is no end. God's riches in this context centers on God's mercy. That's what Paul has, I think, mostly in mind as he mentions riches. And we know this from the previous verse. He has just mentioned in verse 32 that God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then he launches from that into this doxology where he begins with this note of God's riches. And it's what we find in chapter 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. If you want to get a sense for the riches of God as given to 
humankind, read the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Those first, uh, well, I believe it begins in verse 3, all the way to verse 14. Read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And there's a, probably the best little taster of the riches that Paul has in mind. All the, uh, the glories of salvation poured out on humanity. The reservoir of God's goodness and kindness. The picture is one of unlimited wealth. There's never been a truly rich person in this world when compared to these riches. This is unlimited, infinite wealth towards those who stand in his grace. Remember, the grace in which we stand from chapter 5. Those who stand in God's grace, who stand in Christ, are the recipients of this infinite wealth of riches. That's incredible what God has given us. Ephesians 2.7 describes it this way. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So you you see there, Paul here in Romans 11 uses the word depth, but over there in Ephesians 2, he uses the word immeasurable. God's immeasurable riches of grace and kindness and mercy and goodness towards those of us in Christ Jesus. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we sing these songs. That's why we open our mouths and sing praises to God is because of these riches which he has given us. God's wisdom and knowledge, which are then mentioned, are closely linked together in the New Testament. And so some people want to see these as synonymous, you know, wisdom and knowledge, kind of a package deal, or the same thing being repeated in a different way. We find them throughout the New Testament, but I like the way John Murray distinguishes between them. He says this, knowledge refers to God's all-inclusive and exhaustive cognition And understanding, wisdom to the arrangement and adaptation of all things to the fulfillment of his holy designs. And so it is God's wisdom, it is God's knowledge that knows all things, that apprehends and comprehends all things. And it is God's wisdom that determines the target and that in every way designs all to move towards that target the depth of this wisdom and knowledge. The second and third exclamations go together. Paul says at the end of verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's judgments or his decrees or decisions are beyond our understanding. It amazes me how in theology classes or especially on the internet, People go back and forth over these little fine points of theology regarding God's decrees. Here we are told that his decrees or decisions, his judgments as it's being rendered here, are beyond our understanding. Like so far beyond our understanding. They are beyond searching out by human reason. And God's ways, as Paul goes on to say, 
his workings in history, his dealings with humanity, the carrying out of his decrees are beyond tracing out, you know, the image of someone walking through some mud and you see the footprints. God's ways on the earth, his ways of dealing with human beings are beyond tracing out. What's Paul's main point? God's mind and actions are ultimately unfathomable and incomprehensible to us. By the way, we say, and we understand why we say this, that when we, when a person dies, they think about, oh, you know, it's great, I'm going to go to heaven and be with my loved ones. And that is a beautiful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And, and we are to think in that way. If our loved ones are there with the Lord, we are to think in that way. So don't hear me putting any kind of red X on that. But what I want to emphasize here based on this is that when we die, we are going to see God. We are going to see God, period. Sure, we will see grandma and we will see whoever else. But how much more will we see this God described in this way? Unfathomable, incomprehensible. We see these sorts of statements, kind of statements that Paul's making here. We see these sorts of statements throughout the Bible. So let me just give you a few. Psalm 92, 5. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Psalm 139, 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Or Job Chapter 5, verse 9, God does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Wow. They're not just great and marvelous and unsearchable. They are innumerable. Then Isaiah 40, verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So one response is just to be in a state of awe. But what does this tell us about life? Real lived life. We respond to these high lofty words by living a certain kind of life. So what does this tell us about life? And I just want to give you one implication And it's this, there should be no surprise in life when there is perplexity. You know, we often run up against all kinds of perplexity. There are situations in life where we wonder, why? We ask that question when we hear things on the news. We ask that question when we encounter things in our own personal lives, when we hear of the death of a loved one or when we are grieving or when we hear of a tragedy that struck someone else, when we, when we hear of the things that have happened in history, whatever it is, there are many instances in life where we are left going, why? We're left with a sense of perplexity. And here's what a passage like this does for us in our minds is is it helps us make peace with perplexity. 
Because it is inevitable if what we're reading here is true, that God's decrees and God's ways are unsearchable and untraceable. If God's wisdom and knowledge has no depth and his riches towards us in Christ are so great, we know his goodness then we can rest secure in God's goodness and in God's wisdom no matter what happens. So it's not to say that we don't ask the why questions. It's our knee-jerk reaction. It's human to ask why. But at the end of the day, we must return here. And we must make peace with all of the perplexities of life. When we don't understand what's happening, we trust God and remember that his ways are beyond us. Listen to the way Isaiah says it, chapter 55, verses 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we don't lose faith when we can't explain it. We don't lose hope. We don't lose heart. We don't deny God's goodness. We don't become agnostic or atheist. Atheistic. We trust God because we know who he is and we know that there will be much we don't understand. You know, the language that we use, trust God, trust God, we use that. It becomes a slogan, trust God, trust God. There are reasons we trust God, and this is one of them. So we move now to the questions. We've seen the exclamations in verse 33. Now we come to the questions in verses 34 to 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? <clears throat> or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This word for, it's important. It tells us that Paul is here giving the reason for what he's just said. He's, he's grounding what he has just said. And he does this with rhetorical questions. First, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 13. And he asks this. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Now, the answer to each of these questions is implied by the context. Nobody. That's the implied answer. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? No one. In an ultimate sense, no one has known the mind of the Lord. In an ultimate sense, no one has known the mind of the Lord. No one can plumb the depths of God's riches, wisdom, knowledge, judgments, and ways that we just read about. No one can get to the bottom of that and have a complete apprehension, comprehension of it. But, that's amazing, and in light of what we just read, but we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul's been describing what God's been doing, God's salvation. He says this, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit, listen to this. Remember, God's unsearchable. His wisdom, his knowledge, his judgments are unsearchable. Paul says this, For the Spirit searches everything, even 
the depths of God. Unsearchable to us, unsearchable to the Spirit, no. The Spirit of God searches the depths of God. Paul says, even the depths of God. And then in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul goes on to quote Isaiah 40, verse 13, like he quotes here at the end of Romans. Same, same verse, Isaiah 40, 13. But here he takes it in a different direction. Verse 16, he says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And then he says this, But we have the mind of Christ. So see, he takes it in a different direction there. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, it says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what does this tell us? As Christians, sitting here this morning, hearing about how unsearchable and untraceable God's judgments and ways are. Well, it tells us that although we cannot mine the depths of God's mind, we are given a privileged window into the mind of God through Christ, through our union with Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and through God's Spirit-inspired revelation. We are brought up close. A seat is brought up close to the window into the very mind of God. So we're not left just out in the dark. We have this understanding. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And what that means is that although we can't get to the bottom of understanding God's wisdom, his knowledge, his riches, his, his uh, judgments or ways, although we cannot penetrate to the very depth of that, what we understand from this is that in Christ, by the Spirit, with our Bibles open in front of us, we are able to gain much insight into these things about our God. So let me just say this. Why would you not devote your entire life to knowing Scripture? Why would you waste another day when this God, there is absolutely nothing that you could devote your mind to that would even come remotely close? Nothing, nothing to understanding God through His Word to pulling your chair up to this window, which in Christ, by the Spirit, Bible's open, we have into the glories of God's mind. Why would we go another day? Why would you waste another day of your life not immersing yourself day and night, Psalm 1 says, in the Word of God? Paul also says here that God needs no counselor, no advisor. He is the sovereign thinker, planner, designer, and actor. 
Uh, by the way, you know, the whole idea that God looks into the future and sees our faith, uh, everyone believes in predestination because it's a biblical word. So anyone who believes the Bible has to believe in predestination the question, or election. The question is whether God's election is unconditional or conditional. If it's conditional, God looks down into the future. He sees our faith, and then that faith moves him to choose us and to do the things in our lives to save us. If it's unconditional... God simply knowing us in his own mind, his own forelove, foreknowledge, he, he knows us, he makes us and chooses us according to the counsel of his own will. Nothing moves God. He's the first mover, to use the ancient idea of Aristotle. He is the first mover. He is the sovereign thinker, planner, designer and actor. God is entirely independent and self-sufficient. He doesn't need you to move him. He doesn't need me to move him. He is self-sufficient in carrying out his saving purposes in history. Second, quoting from Job chapter 41 verse 11, Paul asks this question. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Who has gone to God and given him something, anything, fill in the blank, any gift for which he is owed some kind of repayment? <clears throat> Once again, implied answer, nobody, no one. With God, there is zero obligation. Anything we receive from him is grace, Pure and simple. Everything in life we receive from God is by grace. It is undeserved favor. We did not deserve to be created. The human race did not deserve to be preserved at the fall. We do not deserve Christ's coming and suffering and dying in our place. We don't deserve that. We do not deserve individually to receive God's salvation. All those things in Ephesians chapter 1 and in chapter 2 that we read about. We did not deserve, do not deserve, will never deserve any of these things. To connect it to Romans 9 through 11, neither Israel nor the Gentiles deserve anything from God. Everything he gives he gives freely, not as a repayment for any merit in us. So let me say this to you. God, if, if you view salvation in any way, shape, or form as God giving you something that you earned, that is a direct affront against the truth of God. That is a direct affront to the sovereignty and to the graciousness of God's Salvation. We act first and then God does the rest. No. Our salvation is from God from beginning to end. He repays no one for any merit. And let me just pull out an implication here. Once again, just one implication for us <clears throat> before we move on to our third point. This verse, verse 35 should destroy all, gr all grumbling, all complaining. 
Let me say that again. Because we do it. I do it. We all do it. We grumble. We complain. We fuss when things don't go our way. You know, interestingly, I was, I was recently thinking, uh, you know, we, we think about curse words, cuss words, if you're from the South. Uh, so these, these words, you know, oftentimes when I was a youth pastor, I used to get constantly this question, uh, is cussing a sin? <laughs> right? Everybody asks that question. It's one of those natural questions. And there's a lot that could be said about that. We know that we want edifying speech to come out of our mouths and so forth. But one of the things I want you to consider about cussing, cursing, is that when we do it, oftentimes we are grumbling. So these words that we use are expressions of grumbling. They're expressions of a discontent heart. They're expressions of uh, displeasure with God's doings. Displeasure with the way things have transpired or the way things are going. That's not all that can be said about it. I'm not going to get into the details of all of that. But I think at the very least, when you're talking to your children about that, that's at the very least that these words we use, it doesn't necessarily have to be those four-letter words either, but these words we use are little expressions. They're verbal expressions of a grumbling heart. So why does verse 35 destroy all grumbling? Well, how could we possibly grumble against God about anything when Everything we have is grace. We deserve absolutely nothing. He owes us nothing. If we were justly repaid, we would be in hell right now. You know, I I once heard a a sermon given at my seminary, and this was more recent. I I was seen it online. I, I saw it online. Uh, by David Platt. David Platt had come back, uh, he had come to the seminary, and he was given a chapel sermon. And at the very beginning, it just so struck me, at the very beginning of his sermon, he stood up very soberly, and uh, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not quoting him directly, but he essentially said, the very first words that came out of his mouth was, um, I should be in hell right now. Instead, I'm here speaking to you all. That's the heart we must have. I should be in hell right now. And instead, I'm sitting in this comfortable space, moderately, I hope so. Uh, I am sitting here with brothers and sisters in Christ. I have the affection of those who love me in the Lord. I'm sitting under God's word. I should be in hell right now. God owes us nothing. And he has given us much. Finally, We come to the conclusions. Look at verse 36. Here, we reach the grand finale. There is nothing more to be said after this. What we're about to read is the final word on all reality. This is philosophy 101. This is Christian worldview, first class, first lecture. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Here Paul gives a two-part conclusion. 
And once again, he is grounding the last two verses. He is giving the reason why no one is repaid by God. So just to follow Paul's logic, here he is moving, he's transitioning into this by giving a direct reason why no one is repaid by God. First conclusion. So let's look at these. First conclusion. From him and through him and to him are all things. All things. We have three prepositions here. Don't want to load you down with grammar. But we have three prepositions which encompass all reality. From, through, and to. God is the source, means, and goal of all things. <laughs> you, you can't think of, he's the reference point no matter where you are spatially. No matter where you are temporally. He's the reference point. God is reality. Everything that exists has its origin with God. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. All existence came into being through him, the eternally existing one. God eternally exists. We exist because we are made. God made us. Everything that exists is sustained by God. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son of God, uh, says of the Son of God that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is right now in this second. That's already passed. And that one passed too. God is upholding right now this universe. He's upholding the big Picture, and he's upholding every little detail. There's nothing, no matter how large or how tiny, infinitesimally tiny, seen or unseen, there's absolutely nothing that God is not right now upholding. All things are through him. Finally, everything that exists is for him. And that leads us to this second conclusion as we finish up this morning. So second conclusion at the end of verse 36, briefly stated, to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen is a statement of finality. It's a statement of truth. Uh, truly, Jesus said, truly, 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 I say to you. He was using the word amen. Amen. Paul ends it by simply saying, this is the truth. This is the truth. There are many things that you may be convinced are true. This is truth. This is God's truth. You go off to university and you sit under fancy professors with their fancy degrees and they try to tell you what is amen. This is amen. All reality, their very breath by which they defy God and deny God, is given to them by God. All things from him. Amen. To him be glory forever. Amen. Here we have the great theme of the Bible. What's the point of the great story? What's the point of the gospel? What's the point of God's plan of salvation throughout history? What's the point of your life? What's the point of our local church? To him, to him be glory forever. Amen.
And how is it that God is glorified? Well, there's a simple answer. It's, it's very, very simple. Through his son. Through his son. Romans 16, verse 27. Notice we get all of these. By the way, this is one of many passages in the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament authors just can't help themselves. They, they, they go to this place often. But at the end of Romans 16, 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is glorified through his son. Period. That's the reason we Christians are exclusivists often called bigots. We're exclusivists because we believe that there is absolutely no way to God apart from this Christ. Because God is glorified through this Christ. And in the end, God will be glorified through this Christ in one of two ways with regard to every person who's ever lived. Either Christ will stand in judgment as the judge Overall, God has appointed a day when he will judge by Christ Jesus. Christ is the judge of all. And in that day, Christ will either judge sinners and send them into hell. Yes, hell is real. Jesus said, do not fear the one who destroys the body, but fear him who destroys both body and soul in hell. Who does that? God through Christ, the judge. Or... Christ will be glorified, or God will be glorified in Christ when all the saints gathered around the throne of the Lamb sing praises to God forever for his shed blood, which was given for the forgiveness of our sins. So through Christ, you will result in God being glorified. All of us. We will all result in God being glorified through Christ, either as he judges you and sends you to hell, or as he embraces you and grants you eternal happiness in the presence of his Father. One or the other. As we close this morning, I want to leave you with a quote from John Calvin about living for God's glory. little quote here. Our being should be employed for his glory. For how unreasonable, <laughs> he's making an argument here, just, just look at it, just think about it. For how unreasonable would it be for creatures whom he has formed and whom he sustains to live for any other purpose than for making his glory known. That's why you live. That's why you have children. That's why you have a spouse. That's why you have a job. That's why you belong to a church. That's why you have a house. That's why you have a car. That's why you have everything you have is for the glory of God. So don't be a fool and live for these things. Don't be a fool. Don't be an unreasonable fool. An impious fool who lives for your own glory, for stuff, for experiences, for the pleasure of other people, 
Live for the glory of God alone. And let the Lord convict you right now. Let the Lord convict you today on where it is that you're really living as a creature of this God who sustains you for something other than the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have revealed to us today through your holy word. We pray that you would create in us this kind of adoration. Lord, we desire more and more that our hearts would be lifted up to these thoughts, to these questions, to these affirmations of who you are and and what our lives are about. God, help us to glorify you truly, to live to make your glory known in all things that your glory would be known. God, may we be that kind of church. May we be those kinds of Christians out in society, out in our jobs, at home with our families, here at church, and privately, day to day, that we would desire to make your glory known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.